Welcome to a very special episode of Don't Feed the Trolls. I'm going to talk to an awesome guest, uh, Marco Collins, legendary DJ from the Seattle area who broke bands such as, I don't know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, uh, Alice in Chains. He was the first to spin them, and he's got an incredible story. But first, before we talk to him, and we'll get through this quickly so we can talk to him, let's, uh, let's read some emails. Heck yeah. Let's read some emails, guys. Brandon Ray sent us a good email. Nate, uh, you let me know today that this that this email came in. I hadn't read it yet. But uh, first off, I wanted to thank you for the feedback for my first email. The blunt honesty is refreshing. I don't know who emailed them back, but maybe maybe that was me. I'm, I'm used to normally being blunt. Uh, anyways, I just listened to your episode on gossip, and it reminded me of when I met Matt in November when he was on tour with Emery. I was on the tour bus for the VIP package, and Matt Mack walked past me asking for a beer and looked like he was having a rough day. <laughs> One of the other VIP people was like, hey, Matt, are we going to get a classic crime acoustic set? He just replied with one simple word, no. I jokingly asked about uh, a Skype set of Vocal Few, even though I love both bands. Not trying to butter you up, but just want to make sure you don't think I'm trolling your ass. He replied with, we just had one. Anyways, the point of this story <laughs> is that some people were talking and saying, man, Matt McDonald seems kind of dickish. I was quick to say that he probably had a rough day and we don't know his struggles. So yeah, fighting those trolls because fame or not, we're all just people. Just wanted to share. Love you dudes. Uh, show and bands, keep it up. Some dude from Chattanooga who handed Matt McDonald a beer once. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, I don't remember having a bad day. <laughs> I, re- I replied to you uh, saying as much. I think I was just trying to get out of the way of uh, Emery's VIP uh, set and not uh, interrupt uh, and make it about me. So I probably was a little bit blunt, and I can be, especially when people aren't there to see me. But sorry if I came off dickish. If anyone thinks I'm a dick, they're probably half right. So my bad. Way to get in trouble, man. Way to just. <laughs> he seemed to take it pretty well. Yeah, I think some people do, but then some people, like you said, like they don't know how to kind of separate the. Uh, we all have bad days, and it doesn't mean that like just because you're on stage doesn't mean you have to be nice to every single person all the time. Right. I was just trying to. I was just trying to get out of Emery's way. I didn't want to make it all about me. So, but yeah, that's that's that. That's our email. You can email us at don't email the trolls at gmail.com. We'd love to get back to you. We respond to most everything. So if you have any comment on the show, or if you think Nate or Matt me is a dick, please just let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Oh yeah, let us know. We uh, we got some emails about websites. We got some emails about faith, and lots of people talking about faith on the emails. Lots of, that seems to be a hot topic. Lots of people talking about their upbringings, conservative Christianity. You know, maybe we should do something about about that, Matt, because that we seems good. We 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 generally blend it in pretty well, but we'll get to the interview really quick here. We just want to mention a few new patrons. Nate, would you like to read some? Uh, <laughs> would you like to read some names for us? Welcome some people to the team. Joe Summers and Dan Nguyen. Thank you. All right. I'm going to call Marco. Welcome, Marco, to Don't Feed the Trolls podcast. We've been playing a bit of tag with you, and we finally caught you. Can you, for our for the people who haven't seen your film, which I, I will say it's called, it's not your film, it's a documentary film that you're in, 
uh, it's called The Glamour and the Squalor. You can check it out at GlamourSqualorFilm.com. Nate and I both watched it. We both loved it. But for those who haven't seen it, can you give a little bit of a background as to like what got you into music? What got you into uh, radio? My exposure to new stuff sort of whittled down to this one little community radio station uh, called Uh KVMR in Nevada City. A very cool little spot in the middle of the woods up there. Uh, Joanna Newsom's from that town, and uh, a lot of folks live up there now that sort of have wanted to get away from San Francisco. Um, But, you know, this little radio station had a punk rock show that aired from like midnight to 6 a.m., and I, this was in the time of 8-tracks. I would record, I'd stay up all night. It was only once a week. I'd stay up all night recording these shows because it was the first time I'd ever heard bands like The Germs or, you know, uh, uh, fucking The Sex Pistols, anybody along those lines. I had just never heard that stuff before. And mm. so, and then my friends and I, after school every day, we'd go over to somebody's house and we'd just listen to these tapes and uh, we'd trade them all week. And, you know, uh, it was, you know, kind of a groundbreaking time for me because a lot of that stuff was just stuff that I didn't understand at the time. And I remember hearing Happy House by Susie and the Banshees for the first time. And I thought I understood punk rock at that point. You know, I thought punk rock was kind of, uh, you know, three chord angry, you know, pop songs, you know, like Dead Kennedys yeah. or X, until I heard the Banshees. And then it scared the crap out of me and kind of made me reconsider what punk rock was about uh and at that point i think that's really how i got into a lot of punk rock at that time is that little tiny radio station in the middle of the mountains and how did you like how did you go from a listener to curator of uh well that was just my obsession you know i had to I knew it was a community station and that you could get involved, but you had to take like 32 hours of classes and you had to, you know, devote all this time. So literally I did one show. Uh, and I don't even think I was the kid that was on I think I was on somebody else's show. Uh, but I brought in all my own records. Right. So I had seven inch singles. And I remember the first time, like I played my own record. It was everything turns gray by agent orange. And I just, to me, that was it. It clicked at that point. Uh, but my mom wouldn't let me have the car to drive up there every day because it was lots of curvy roads through the woods. I live in the woods myself, so I can speak to uh, this problem you had growing up because it's my life now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Marco, t- t- tell us how how did you get your first gig as a as a DJ? Uh, well, my first official gig. Let me think about that. It was. Um, I was, it was college radio. I was going to San Diego State University. I kind of got sick of Northern California and decided that uh, I wanted to give Southern California a try. And I just wanted to see what the world was like in Southern California. So at 18, I just packed up my car, didn't have a job, got my car, took off, drove all the way down, lived on the beach for weeks, got a job and a place to stay. Actually, I think it was about 19 because I went my first year of school to uh, Sacramento State. That's where I'm from. Is that where you're from? Yeah, I grew up. Yeah, Sacramento. Born and raised. You're kidding me. I had no idea. Nope. So you know Nevada yeah. City. You know Auburn and Meta Vista and all that crap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I know. So, I know about Slack State. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, all my friends went there. I almost... Yeah, we were. that was the... 
I ended up going to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, but almost went to Sac State. So I think I chose the better, though. The better. What was your major? Recreation, Parks, and Tourism Administration. <laughs> wow, you put that to good use, haven't you? <laughs> He's building his own <laughs> park right now. Yeah, Nate told yeah, me before exactly. this. Nate told me before this interview, uh, the neighbor's dog came over and killed a bunch of his chickens. That oh, seems like yeah. a park ranger problem. How many chickens? Oh, uh, like I think uh, it depends how many, how many got. Get? Probably like five <laughs> oh, or six. Five or six That's chickens. Terrible. Oh, yeah, I'm That's pissed right now. So I had to drink a little bit of wine before this show to loosen up. So okay. <laughs> sorry if my brain is. I was pretty pissed. <laughs> Well, I don't know what to I do. Do they compensate for that? I mean, do you go over and hold the chickens in front of them and say, either you pay for these or your dog is gone next time? That's what I would do. <laughs> well, and I, I love animals, farmer, but, but you can't have that shit. No, it's true. That's what my buddy, uh, who's a farmer, said. He's he's like, dude, I had a dog, my neighbor's dog one time kill like 200 of my chickens, and uh, that dog never came back to my property because took two steps on and went into a hole, and that was that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, now we're talking about I mean, killing dogs. I don't know. I mean, it's a I'm trying to That's figure true. out. I'm trying. I'm trying to inform people on Marco's uh, <laughs> up in you know his 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 background here as, as getting into radio. But maybe this is why dogs. Marco is so successful, though, is because he he knows how to turn it back on the other people, right? You, you ask questions. about <laughs> He's other interviewing us. I'm oh no! I'm less. I'm, I'm much better interviewer than I am an interviewee. So. Uh, no, but they, so it's in Southern California, uh, lived out of my car for two weeks, lived on the beach, got a job teaching sailing, had never sailed in my life, <laughs> maybe <laughs> once, uh, but the boats were real small and uh, I was a part of a hotel and I just, we'd get up in the morning and go swim in the hotel pool, go into the hotel bathroom, shave, do what I needed to do and then jump in the jacuzzi, you know, sort of scrub out the armpits. <laughs> Throw on some clothes and be at the dock at 9 a.m. ready to teach sailing. You know, I did that for a couple of weeks, then got a place to live. And uh, and then decided after a summer, I was only going to do it for the summer. I just wanted to sort of, you know, when you're 19, you're you're uh, indestructible, right? You can yeah. pretty much do anything. Yeah. You can live out of any situation. You're not going to die. Uh, I wish that I still had some of that that oomph in me. You know, now I'm I'm a pussy i don't want to go anywhere unless the hotel's nice and has a spa um <laughs> it uh anyway i um yeah. so i switched all my units i was going to sac state and i just switched all my units to san diego state and i couldn't actually declare a major because the major i was going in for which was communications was impacted so i had to wait a little bit mm. to get into the program and uh, at that time, I just I poured myself into the college radio station, and within a year, I was music director. Um, you know, when when I want something, I find that I go get it like very quickly. Yeah, I just I set my sights on it, and I don't take my sights off it. Every moment of of the you know the waking days sort of set to to make those things possible. Right. What do you think it was about music that clicked so early on for you? Like that was one thing I was thinking about when I was watching the film is like some people just it does something to their soul and it kind of connects in a way that other people just kind of like they listen to the radio, but you it was like it turned something on. What do you, what do you think that was? Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. I really don't know. I just know that I felt something with it and uh, you know, 
I was a kid that was like kind of stuck in my bedroom, you know, I mean, I had friends and, you know, we ran around and were crazy, but maybe, maybe it sort of projected some of the world that I, I wasn't exposed to. Um, okay. uh, and you know, I just, I felt like that was an exciting, dangerous part of life that I, <laughs> I had yet to discover. Uh, and yeah. so I would sit in my bedroom. I was the kid that would listen to the record so many damn times. I knew the space in between. I knew how many seconds in between each song on a record. Remember when people listen to records that long, you know, that much? You no. Know, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so let me just ask you guys this. Your favorite record of all time is what? I would say, yeah, different time periods. How about, how about, uh, how about, at that point in my life, Siamese Dream was huge. Loved. I loved, loved Smashing Pumpkins. Fantastic record. That was like one of those records for like seven or eight years. I just couldn't get enough. I mean, I'll, I'll say this: outside of the, outside of the classics, and, and obviously like Beatles' White Album, I think is probably one of them. But I was thinking, uh, I that Arcade Fire Suburbs record, I can't get away from. They came out with, I don't know, four or five years ago. I I still think it's one of my favorites. It's like a full concept with the lyrics, the textures, the tones, the tension notes. I just think it's super good. And that's the one I always come back to is 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 that record. And I know people are like Funeral was better cuz it's their first one and they kind of like it was groundbreaking, but I like Suburbs. I think it's in my top 5 for sure. Yeah. Right. No, I was I was in my yeah, I was in my late twenties when I when I heard that and that was that moved me pretty powerfully. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. Most people between sixteen and twenty three or something is kind of when the big when music kinda hits you at that pivotal moment and it sinks into your soul and those records that you listen to then are kind of like they they are salient. They kind of like stand out. So anyways, back to you, Marco. Stop spitting yeah, this on yeah. us, man. You're too good. Well, I didn't at your think job. this was an interview with me. I thought it was just a conversation between three it dudes is, who are passionate wanna, about music. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear from you because okay. All right. yeah. I think you have a special gift. Obviously, so you got in. You got into the radio gig at like 19. You were going to college. You became the program director. What brought you to Seattle initially? Well, what brought me to Seattle was the job. I'd never been in Seattle. Um, the only people I knew here in Seattle. Uh, at that time, were Soundgarden uh, was Soundgarden because uh, my roommate in San Diego was a promoter, the big promoter in San Diego, and he would bring them to town. We'd go out to dinner with them after the show or before the show. So I kind of uh-huh. got to know them and Susan Silver, their manager, and then I did promotion for record label for a year. So I worked with uh, a label called Earache um, that put out like Godflesh and Bolt Thrower and uh, what were the other bands? Just gnarly grindcore thrower. thrower. What what were the other ones? Um I'm spacing on all the good names. Um friggin' Bolt Thrower is pretty good, man. Napalm Death. <laughs> Napalm Death, yes. Yeah, Napalm Death. I think I've seen all those stickers on club walls. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And you're always like, who listens to this band? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, so I did college radio promotion and that's you know, I did it for a year, like eight months, actually, yeah. before I moved up yeah. here. Um, and, you know, I got exposed to a lot of different things just by, you know, I was doing national 
college promotion. So it was like my job to schmooze all those college radio stations across the country. And you learn a hell of a lot about music when you're talking to kids that are 10 years or younger who know 10 times more than you could ever dream of. Uh, and then yeah. I got the gig uh, to start this alternative station in Seattle. And I'd never been here, man. I picked up my bags. I said yes to the gig because I was already a big fan of the Sub Pop Singles Club and Mud Honey and Nirvana. Those bands already existed. They just hadn't blown up uh, as big as they ended up. And I uh, got on an airplane and with my bags, and that was it. Like, landed, and I was there. I never left. Uh, I mean, I've left since then, but, you know, that hmm. was it, man. And I remember, you know, driving in. Uh, my new boss picked me up at the airport and driving in and seeing the Space Needle and thinking, oh, damn, I'm here. Like, this is it. This I've seen pictures, you know. This was before the internet, uh, and I just couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to get up here, man. So it was it was a great thing for me. There's something about your story that I think is interesting, and we're, we we want to talk about the art of curation because you know Nate and I are a bit of creators. We make art, but there's something like there's something. I mean, without people who discover and promote art within a scene or a movement, nobody would hear the creators like nobody would. Well, it's funny how it how it's like desired on both sides. You know, people right. who are creating the art sometimes want to be the the people who are like moving it all over the place. And the people who aren't creating the art want to create it. And it's just this is this this tension back and forth. There's, but yeah, I mean, there's this thing. There's this thing about your story. It seems very your story seems very punk rock or counterculture or like when I watched the documentary. Um, I I noticed that like, you know, you said ba basically labels would say play this and you'd say, no, I'm going to play what I want. And kind of because you protested, because you did your thing, you lit a fire that literally went global. I mean, you said, I'm going to play what I want. And those bands like would go platinum like two weeks later. You know? Well, like, yeah. You know what? It didn't happen quite that. You know, first of all, let's just let's acknowledge that a movie uh, is one man's interpretation of your life. Sure, sure, uh, sure. And, and the story, <laughs> and uh, that particular story is my director's. Um, and although most of it is true, not all of it is true. Right, right. Uh, right. I will say that uh, <laughs> from the onset, because now I'm having to answer to uh, decisions he made during the film that sure. aren't accurate. Sure. You know, I'm not the first person to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. Right, uh, right. I'm, and, you know, the film says that. I'm like, dude, I fucking, I'm going to have to take the brunt of this. Now I am taking the brunt of it. And, you know, the sad thing about it is the guy that was the first person to play it, I mean, I was probably the second, right? But the guy that was the first person to get behind this record and really play it is a good friend of mine. Right. Who, his name is Kurt okay. St. Thomas. He worked at a station called WFNX. Where was that station located? Boston. Okay. They've since shut down. They're a brilliant radio station. That's and awesome. Kurt was one of yeah, Kurt was like one of the best music directors in the country. He was phenomenal. But at some point the world's ears were tuned to Seattle and kind of like and at some point everyone was like, There's something going on there in the local scene that is super special. Yeah. That you kind of had a handle on. Whether or not you were the first to play some of this stuff you were the curator of the stream of thought that what that like became the global grunge music. You take credit no, for Alice in Chains. No, no, no. I can't <laughs> take. I, in fact, I wasn't even close to first on that band. Uh, they they were not one of my. 
I, I subscribe to the school. <laughs> Listen, back in the day, you had to be in one of two camps. You had to be in the Pearl Jam camp or you had to be in the Nirvana camp. Yeah. And I was clearly in the Nirvana camp. <laughs> Nirvana was punk rock all the way through. And Pearl Jam was kind of borrowing from a lot of 70s references. And right. I just was not as big a fan yeah. of the classic rock thing. And that's kind of where Pearl Jam came from. Now, the weird thing about it is Pearl Jam was bent over backwards for us on this film. Uh, Mike McCready, the guitarist of the band, scored the entire film. Wow. Uh, the band licensed, for the first time ever, a live and even flow to us. Uh, you know, those guys have been unbelievably cool helping us with this film. And have we gotten anything from Nirvana? Fuck no. <laughs> um, well, good, yeah. good luck. I think right? they charged us twice the price for Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think, um, I think Pearl Jam might have might might win a bit just because of their longevity as a band. You know, like they stuck around. Well, we, so who okay. owns Nirvana now? Like, who owns? Who owns the rights uh, to all that? His daughter and like lawyers and you know uh, probably partially Courtney and Dave and uh, Chris. There's a lot of people in the mix in that camp, so there's too many people in the mix to actually get a friends and family. Right, Courtney. One of the things I noticed on the film was, she, th at least that's what was told on the film was that she used to call the radio station. You would just chat with her. Yeah, for long, long periods of time. It wasn't just chatting with her at the radio station. Uh, there's a couple of stories that were left out. Um, like the night that Courtney invited me over to the house after Kurt had died. And I spent the night with Courtney. Uh, <laughs> it was a very wild night. A very surreal night for me. Wow. Spending the night in Kurt and Courtney's bedroom upstairs in the old house God. it was uh it was crazy i just never i'd never been invited over to the house for whatever parties you know i'd never been invited and this was the first time i was invited and courtney called me when i was on the air and said hey i've got something for you can you come over and i'm like uh yeah it's 11 at night uh, yeah i'll jump in the cab and i'll swing by and so i you know stopped by and uh she ended up giving me that night a uh, uh, version of Live Through This with Kurt Cobain singing backup vocals on the track. And her label wouldn't let her, yeah, the label wouldn't let her release it. So she wanted me to leak mm. it, which at that time I'd already sort of built a reputation of leaking records. So bands, <laughs> bands ended up trusting me to leak things without. You know, it's years later. Now we can talk about it. You know, I, I would never have sold anybody out back in the day because that's where I got all my leaks. Right. Was from the fucking bands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I uh, love it. So they sort of, this uh, is like, this is before like Napster, or before like Radiohead giving away their record for free. It was yeah, kind of yeah. like the original sort of subverting the, the, the money structures and the authorities and saying we're gonna we're gonna play this first for the people for the ears of the people who want to hear it. I just love that mentality, yeah. and I think that has to be the mentality of a good curator. As someone who goes, you know what? The people matter. They they're gonna flip when they hear this, and I'm doing it for them. I'm not doing it for the guys upstairs.
You know what's funny though is when I saw that scene with Kurt Cobain talking about me leaking in utero in utero in the movie. Yeah. First of all, I can't believe that my director found that scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the fact that you know it, it, when I first saw that, I was like, "Fuck, you were kind of a dick." Yeah. Like he, he talked you about him he, off, dude. He talked. He <laughs> talked about <laughs> killing you. He talked about hiring someone to off you. How does that? How does how does it make you feel that Kurt Cobain wanted to? Wanted to jokingly off you at some point. Well, you know, here's the thing. It wasn't that fucking bad. I got it from Albini. Like, yeah. Albini, it was a first-generation cassette. Yes, it was a cassette. Yes, there's lots of hiss on cassettes. But a first-generation from the guy that produced it, the quality wasn't that bad. When you heard You it. know what it was, though? The strings had not been mixed in. So the label came to Kurt. When Kurt delivered in utero, it was rough, man. And the label was stressed. And Kurt wanted to make a punk rock record, and the label still wanted to be able to milk this, you know, uh, legacy. Right. And so they, they had a couple singles mm. that they wanted to put strings on. All apologies, right. dumb. And I think even one more track, and they hadn't put on all of the strings. They wanted to master it, beef it up, add violin, do whatever they wanted. So I had the version that was not final. Uh, that was oh, not. Okay. It was the punk rock version directly from Albini, not the DGC version. Now, when, so, you, when you heard it, did you know it was good? Or were you just like, I'm going to play this because people will fall? You know what? I Well, I didn't know what, how I felt about it. Now, looking back years later, me and, me and one of my friends were talking about this, that In Utero has stood up better in the test of time than Nevermind has. Yeah. And it, you know why I think that is? And I bet you guys would agree with me. And if you do, I'd love to hear it. If you don't, I'd love to hear it. I think punk rock stands up. Right. Because I think punk rock is a medium that speaks to uh -huh. young people, young, angry people. Right. I think punk rock is always going to stand up. Because there's always going to be that 13-year-old kid that's angry at his parents. He's angry at school. He's not fitting in. He can't find his place in the world. And all the yeah. time, that's what punk Happened rock is. Aggression. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny that you're talking about this whole punk rock thing because my understanding of Kurt Cobain was that he would be all about the record label getting, you know, the screws put to them and you just leaking the real version. That just seems like I thought that was such a weird twist because I, I thought Kurt would be the guy to be like anti-record label and be like, here you go, play whatever you want, man. It might have been a little counterculture even for Kurt at that point, uh, especially because we had the ear. <laughs> We had the ears of all of Seattle, all of the Northwest. So when we did something, right. people tuned in. We were the number one. We were the first alternative station in the country to go number one in a market. Like that rating is normally only you know, only top 40 radio stations achieve that. Only stations like yeah, Cube. Yeah. So when, when we kind of flipped yeah, the rug yeah. under Cube, they weren't happy about that at all. Yeah, the, the grunge scene in Seattle is like, I mean, akin to... San Francisco in the 60s you know it's like it, it, I mean so many bands when you look at Alice in Chains Pearl Jam Nirvana uh Soundgarden I mean and then you went on to play a bunch of stuff I don't know if it was first or whatever but I just want to list these bands you can tell me if I'm wrong Presidents of the USA Weezer Beck Foo Fighters obviously Dave Grohl was in that band so people were going to play it Death Cab for Cutie were you playing that band from Bellingham yeah. before other people were? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the first time that band played live on, on the radio ever was on my show on Sunday night. And the funny thing about Death Cab, um, I was a huge fan, and they were real excited that I was that into them. I was playing them from a cassette. In fact, hold on. 
Yes. <laughs> For people at home, Marco's getting uh, what I believe to be a cassette from his shelf. There it is. Which record? It Death was a live record. In fact, I can't even find it oh on there. God. How do I get rid of the reflection? There it is. They put crayon on Yeah, there's on crayon it? on this cassette. <laughs> this isn't even listed on what? their... Uh, on their like discography or whatever it's not it's not listed so yeah. it's a live live from the kitchen sink it's something they totally recorded in their kitchen so you you heard you heard that how'd you get a hold of that the band the band gave it to me um i, I did oh. the local music show too that's kind of how i also had a tip on on what was going on before people is I did the local show so I was constantly you know open to whatever was coming at me from the local scene Here to the ground and yeah. these guys you know they they a friend of mine actually managed Ben's old band uh, and I forget what his band was called it was called as not as Ben's old band I can't remember and it was somebody I was dating was managing Ben's old band so I kinda got turned on to him that way but the funny thing is, the first time we played live on, they played live on the air, it wasn't really live. We did it from a local studio. We recorded the whole thing. It was mixed, 24 tracks. So the recordings are unbelievably well done. Yeah. And then the producer handed me a CD at the end of the week. We hyped it up on the air as if it were live. We had a live audience in the studio. And I would just pop in the CD and play the CD. Well... This it had worked every single time. I did a series of like eight or nine of them, and this particular time, this TD skip, it skipped during my intro. So it was like, ka, 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 ka. So what I did? Oh I, man! I faded it down. It was the first thing I could think of. I faded it down, just let a little dead air stay, and then turned back up the mic and said, "You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're broadcasting live here, and oftentimes." With these ISDN lines, you've got some sort of digital glitch. We're trying to fix it right now. I'm going to play this song. I'll be right back. We're going to be live <laughs> with Def Cab and from from Jupiter Studios. <coughs> and then I just queued it up to like the applause, so that my whole intro was. And I'd say, "Okay, we're ready to go again. Hopefully, we got the glitch taken care of." Ladies and gentlemen, Def Cab. And I just hit play again, and you can hear the audience clapping, and it just went right in. I was terrified. Honestly, all I did is take the CD out of the player and went <laughs> and wiped it on my shirt and put it back in the player. So you you played Death Cab. I mean, what like what makes you think that this that people are gonna like this? I if like there's something about you that if you like something, it seems to be that a lot of people like it. What do you think like informs that in you? You know, like why? Why do you think you can kind of? I don't know. That's you know what nobody's ever asked me that direct question, and that's probably that's probably the the best question yet because I don't I don't know. All I know mm -hmm. is that when I listen to music, I'm listening for a number of different things. But the bottom line is, I mean, you, like there's got to be a hook to it. You know, I'm a huge fan of pop songs. You know, I grew up listening to Top Forty Radio long before I listened to anything else, and. I've got to have that hook, but there's a million different things outside of that, you know, just dynamics, hooks. I don't know what it really is. I, I haven't been able to put my finger on it, to be honest with you, Matt. I, uh, well, you sound like you sound like when people ask me, uh, how do I write songs? You know, right. it, sounds, it sounds the same song. I don't know. I just, you just kind of do it. <laughs> Nobody knows how this right? works. You're, you're, you're pulling something from something. Uh, I don't really know, man. I just know that when I hear something, I know it instantly. And I can tell 
if it's got potential from a demo or, you know, when something just needs to be produced bigger, I can hear it right off the bat. Like, right. Did you ever, did you ever think about like, did you ever get offered to be like an A&R guy at a label or? I did A&R for a year for Rage Against the Machine. We were trying to start our own label. Um, the label really not, never got off the ground, but I, I did it for about a year, almost signed three bands, and then got a job offer from VH1 to come be their music director and kind of re, totally revamp the station. Uh, take it from being like a Michael Bolton easy listening thing to, you know, Pearl Jam and Bush and No Doubt and, and that kind of thing. Do you feel like sometimes in the music business, it's, it's, it's always hard when there's like those amazingly talented artists that are kind of in this graveyard of like, man, remember that band? They should have been huge, but what happened? You know, can you talk about that a little bit? I, I, I actually look at a lot of my success as being luck too. I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. It was the perfect storm. You think, you know, you have the scene already, already happening. You had a commercial station that was not only willing to play the records that labels were handing them but actually embraced the scene and bring the scene into the radio station um it was just the perfect storm man uh, and would i have had that success had i been in any other scene well i have been in several other scenes and it hasn't taken off like that i was in sacramento uh, um at the same time you know papa roach was breaking and deftones were breaking and whatnot and that scene never really exploded Although I kind of still look at the at Sacramento as being sort of the home of emo in a way, like you know the Deftones kind of started really? that screamo thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't you look at the Deftones as sort of being one of the first bands to sort of? The, I mean, they're sort of the originators of screamo, wouldn't yeah. you say? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I remember they were huge. No, Sacramento had a pretty good little, a pretty good music scene. We were. Yes, uh, man. We had, had cake. We had. Cake, yeah, Cake played. It was funny. Cake was slated to play my freshman dance. Uh, yeah. And then they blew up. They blew up that, that fall, and then they were too big right. to play at our high school. Play the dance. Um, well, they, the rock and roll lifestyle started getting played a lot. Right. And then, and then we were like, oh. Cake was booked to play our freshman dance. But yeah, there was Papa Roach. Um, yeah. But they were kind of Modesto, right? Weren't they from Modesto? Yeah, they were further down. But, you know, Jacoby and I became good friends at that point because, okay. <clears throat> again, I worked for a radio station. that When I started at the station, they had never had a Chino or Jacoby into the radio station to do an interview, ever. These two artists are oh. from that area. And our station hit Modesto. So we were Sacramento and Modesto, that whole area, Stockton, we reached what, what, that whole what, what area. The quad? <coughs> quad. It was called the Quad 106.5. Oh, yeah. And when quad I got there, I'm like, how the fuck do you have a radio station that doesn't embrace the two biggest artists from your city? <laughs> and so I remember when the first time I had Chino on the radio station, and I had known Chino from the end because we were the first station to play Deftones as well. Uh, and so I'd known Chino for a long time and, and I was like, dude, why don't you come in and do a takeover? Like two hours, you play whatever you want. And he was like, what? Really? And he was like, dude, you don't even understand. So I had him come in to cut a promo. Hey, it's Chino, blah, blah, blah. And we cut this whole promo with Deftones music behind it. And I'm going to be taking over for two hours, blah, blah, blah. And he told me <laughs> literally that he was in the shower 
And, you know, that's his family, man. That's where he's from. And he was in the shower. I'd heard the promo during the day and just was, like, so prideful. And his family called him, like, you know, his mom called him, oh, his yeah. sister called him. I mean, that shit means a lot to people. Sure. When you are from a town and your town hasn't embraced you or hasn't had you on the air, and, you know, all of a yeah. sudden he's hearing his voice, like, well, that's, you know, that means a lot to people. You guys, I mean... You guys at the end definitely did that. I mean, you you embraced a scene and it just happened to be the biggest scene in the world at that time and become that. But like, doesn't everything just, isn't it supposed to start normal, like locally? Yeah, it kind of became that. It wasn't the biggest scene in the world when I got here. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, the first two records I got, though, it, it pretty quickly became that. The first two records I got when I got here, because I was not only on the air as a uh, DJ, but I was music director too. So the first two records I was handed were 10 and never mind, you know, <laughs> and singles somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, so it was crazy, man. I mean, crazy. You know, it took about eight months to nine months to really take off. But yeah, within that time period, it became the biggest scene in the world. And I, I don't think anybody expected that. How did you like, how did you just, were you just rolling with it? Were you just, like, you're just like, okay, this is what it is, you know? Like it You don't really realize it, man, because the, there wasn't the internet then. So you don't realize what's going on and how big it is. The only way I really knew what was going on is to see newspapers. Uh, or I used to buy a monthly magazine called New Musical Express, NME, and I still pick it up whenever I can. Um, and that was just the way that I was exposed to how big Nirvana was around the world and the kind of crazy things that were going on with the band. And then also my best friend was uh, a guy named, or one of my best friends was a guy named Nils Bernstein. And he ran Kurt's fan club out of his apartment on Capitol Hill. So he ran the Nirvana fan club from a little, you know, Victorian apartment. And when things blew up, like we would go over there and there'd be stacks of letters that were like three feet high from all over the world. Japan, like it. And that was another way that we gauged. I'm like, holy right. shit, this, this is how to yeah, people, people didn't know. Man. I mean, there's that story of like Kurt sleeping in his car like the week his record goes platinum. And he doesn't even know because the money hasn't kicked downstream yet. There, here's the thing, Matt. Like Marco worked at both of our favorite radio stations <laughs> growing up. Uh, so that's yeah, trip, I so to, that was I forgot you're Sacto boy, yeah. Yeah, I listened to Quad 106.5. That's like a big deal. That's what got me into music. That's what they played, you know, kind of cool bands. It wasn't quite it didn't feel quite as groundbreaking as what you're talking about with 107.7, but definitely the coolest radio station in Sacramento was Quad. And 98 Rock was a little more, I don't know. They played a little bit more heavy stuff that I wasn't super into, but I, I hosted a show know, called The Sounds like of Blink Sax. Too yeah, Sunday nights? Yeah. That was my Sunday show. Sunday nights, Sounds of Sax. Yep. Nate probably heard you on the radio, too, as a kid. I used to work at a station in L.A., too, and other than me Skyping in for music meetings and whatnot, this is the first time I've ever done this. Uh, You're doing a great job. Hey, um, I do have to get out of here at 8, though. Um and it's seven fifty-seven, so maybe we should. We can wrap it up. Uh, why don't we get? Some, why don't we get some wisdom for folks? Um, I just want to say one thing. You seem to understand the power of music in the in the film Glamour and the Squalor. You, I saw, yeah. I saw you sitting next to Macklemore and, and Ryan Lewis talking about their song "Same Love" and how you thought it was going to change the nation's view 
on it did change the on, nation's and that's view. what i'm talking about two years later the supreme court lifted its ban on marriage between same-sex <laughs> couples and you called it on film last week i see macklemore sitting next to president obama um a meeting inspired by his song kevin about his friend who fell victim to um, opioid pill addiction and here's a musician who's mm. like gone to bat against discrimination and addiction both trolls that you're kind of familiar with, like, how much do you love this guy? And how much do you like, like, you kind of called it with him, right? Kind of what? Well, you just kind of, you, you kind of call it, you know, the power of music, you know, the power of a song. And then it, and then it changed. We just learned last or yesterday or today that Prince died of an opioid, um, overdose. Yeah. And that's a fucked up drug, by the way. I, I have friends that, uh, have OD'd on that drug and, uh, are no longer with us. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's attacking for one thing. That's one drug I have never done. Let me just say yeah. like I've done most of them and that's one that I haven't, but I'm aware of how rampant it is because I have friends that, you know, are in the, uh, on the front line with that shit. And, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it bums me out. Well, the, the beautiful thing is, is here we have music and songs that are raising awareness about these issues in such a positive way that that, hmm. that can change kind of the national discussion on it. When you see Macklemore next to President Obama talking about opioid addiction, you go, okay, maybe we can do something. And it's because of a song. You know, it's because of that. Huh. And that's kind of the you power know, of music that you've, you've kind of always, uh, seems like you've had your finger on the pulse of. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was pretty obvious with the Macklemore song. I mean, it just, it, it, you know what it is? If something moves me emotionally, I, I tend to be a little bit more sensitive than a lot of people. I'll cry at the drop of an effing hat. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter, man. I'm like, I'm very moved. Yeah, this is this reminded me of this reminded me of something I wanted to ask you real quick. If you don't have to go uh, right away, but I wanted to say how much like how your relationship with your dad affected your love for music because that was a very big part of the film, um, and. Uh, Dad you know, every son has a relationship with us. Go ahead. Yeah. My father influenced uh, my musical taste big time. I mean, my dad got me into stuff that I just never would have been turned on to. You know, like, you know, just James Brown. Like, I didn't understand James Brown when I first heard him. I remember my dad taking me to see Peter Frampton. My dad took me to see a lot of stuff when I was young. And I remember watching James Brown going, I don't fucking get this. The, the dude can leave the stage for a half hour and this is his show? Like, how dare he leave the stage? And I'm sure at that time in the 80s, he was doing piles of blow in the back. But, I mean, he literally would leave the stage for a half hour while his band just, you know, did their whole, like, routine. And I just sat there going, man, that dude barely has to work. I didn't understand it. And years later, I understood it, obviously, and, and embraced it. But, yeah, my dad exposed me to most of that stuff. And I remember my dad really sitting down with me and really making me listen to music differently. Like, he would make me listen to the guitar. He would make me break it down in my head. Like, block all the other music out and just listen to the guitar. Or now just listen to the bass and listen to that beat. Like, he would make me break, sort of, uh. Uh, be able to just understand it differently. Like like dissect each instrument and separate them and focus just on that one instrument. Well, just listening and listening intently. Absolutely. Uh, so, so Marco, one, one more thing before you go, our, our podcast is called don't 
feed the trolls and it's kind of about battling trolls battling our negative inner voices and our you know outer voices negativity sometimes we win sometimes we lose for better or worse we end up learning something about ourselves and about the world that we didn't know before what are some takeaways you've learned from battling like your your own trolls over the years that you could maybe share with some people who might struggle with similar <laughs> you things? You have to throw that one in right at the end. Right at the end, Matt, Matt throws the zinger. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because people, people, be people might be out there with similar. They might see your film and really relate to kind of the stuff you've been through. What 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 can you share? What are some takeaways that you've learned that you can share with people who who find themselves in similar situations? You know, for me, it's it's always about trying to be a better person, trying to do, uh, trying to move forward and move through these these uh, roadblocks. Um, you know, for me, I I'm still not beaten drug addiction. You know, I this is the third time we had scheduled this interview. The first two times hmm. I blew it off because I was in a different place. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still not sober, dude. I mean, it's something that I struggle with. I'm in a lot better place than I used to be, but I'm still not 100% sober. And, you know, that is something hmm. that I'll probably struggle with my, uh, my entire life. My, my ride is actually just pulling up outside. <laughs> um, we're going to see. We're going right. to go see MXPX tonight. Hey, say hi to Mike and hey. say, hi, say hi to those guys Boys. for me. You guys probably are all good friends. Yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, I, we toured with those guys. Classic Crime toured with us. Yeah, just just uh, just tell them hi for us. We'll let you go. Uh, for everybody back at home, you need to see this film, GlamourSqualorFilm.com. It's called The Glamour and the Squalor, and it's all about Marco Collins. Yeah. Thanks, Marco. Available on iTunes and Amazon iTunes right now. iTunes and Amazon right now, so you can watch it tonight. Nate and I both paid five yep. ninety nine, and we we both say it's worth it. Hundred percent would do again. <laughs> uh, thank yeah. you guys very much. Thank you for that. All right. And sorry about the first two fun. times. No, no worries. No worries. Endless <laughs> grace for you, Marco. You're a beautiful human. We love you. Thank you. I'll talk to you guys later. Nice to meet you, Nate. Take care. Thanks, Marco. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs>